1: Welcome back. We are talking about a CAA poll, which has more than half of all drivers admitting that they sometimes drive dangerously. I'm going to begin with Paul in Woodstock. Hi, Paul. Hello, Libby. I love your show, girl. Thanks, thanks. So are you going to admit to some unsafe driving habits? Everybody
2: has done it. Anybody that says they haven't is a liar. Okay. I've been driving tractor trailer for over forty years, and every day I see it. Every
1: single day, and and the scary part is, a lot of these people don't even realize it. Uh, have you ever done anything? What do you admit to?
2: I've done just about everything. <laughs> I'm going to be perfectly honest. I have driven too fast, driven too slow, driven while I'm tired. Uh, made lane changes at the last minute. Let me see. But you know what? What? In over 40 years of driving tractor trailer, I have never had a preventable accident. Oh. I probably have somewhere around 3 million miles.
1: Well, you certainly have a lot of experience. Uh, do you think that things are worse because of all the construction or the pandemic or something like that? Construction,
2: I have an issue with a lot of things you do with construction. Like right now out in the London area, and even going down into toward Brantford, they'll have a construction zone two miles before you get to construction. People get impatient. They want to be in front of me. Nobody wants to be behind a big truck. Everybody wants to drive in the spot I'm in for some reason. We don't go fast enough for them, which you can take that up with the provincial government with speed limiters. Uh, they they think we're a pain in the butt. But you know what? On a regular basis, I have to do things to save their life because they do stupid things in front of me. And I think I need a lot of room to stop. Just because i got big tires and big brakes doesn't mean I'm going to stop in a hurry. They get about one or two car lengths in front of me, no singles, over they come. Okay. I'm 63 years old. I'm going to be 64. I have learned a lot of patience over the years, and I just kind of shake my head and say, one of these days. And, yep. And one thing that really tends to stick in my craw is every time a big truck is involved in an accident, the driver gets charged because the company will pay, the insurance will pay, where they have a lot of trouble getting money out of a somebody else. The big companies always pay. No matter what, the driver is charged. And I've seen that time and time and time again.
1: Okay, Paul. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, let's go back to our panel. Uh, Raymond Chan, do you think things are worse because of all the construction? Well,
3: I, I don't necessarily think it's, it's bad because of the construction. You might have had some of the people who are, are doing these dangerous acts like uh, like donuts in the parking lot, simply switch over to a parking lot because there's no longer that room on our street. So construction certainly, I think, plays a minor role in everything. But what I really attribute the stunt driving and the aggressive nature of, of, of people driving is really the COVID pandemic. You know, we've been largely in lockdown as a province since uh, March 2020. Uh, and we've seen a significant surge in, in both speeding and street racing, uh, both of which can have really serious consequences for all parties involved. And I think that uh, with those empty streets, and, and, and one of your earlier callers said it, that it's the younger people that are engaging in some of these actions. But what our survey has found and what I've uh, often seen is that uh, some driving and aggressive driving, it, it it knows no boundaries. It's not simply just young people who think they're invincible and that they can take the punishment that, that's coming to them. It's people of all ages, people of, um, of all genders that, that, that are actually doing this. It's not just simply young males who are uh, driving very aggressively and driving dangerously here on our streets. It's, it's literally everybody.
1: Brian Patterson, sometimes uh, the issue seems to be that people don't necessarily know the rules. So often I get cut off at four-way stops. So is it uh, the person who gets there first, like you go in order of when you arrived at the stop sign, or is it the person on the right? Uh, fill us in.
4: I think what we there's a there's a real need for a bit of a refresher on the uh, on the basic rules, but it's rarely in the in the cases that we deal with they don't know what the what the what the rule is. They they understand what the speeding is. You know, I often think that uh, two things: one, uh, Newton's law of physics is what is what uh, is in play. Whether the Highway Traffic Act is uh, is. Uh, going to result in a ticket. Uh, you know, I think of the truck drivers who get cut off, and you think uh, uh, they're going to roll over that car if it doesn't get out of there in time. Uh, it's it's tragic, and you know, I was watching the Olympics last night, and I see they have a lifeguard on the pool. That must be the most unfulfilling job than the guy who puts the turn signals in a BMW or a Ford F-150. Because Nobody's going to use them. <laughs>
1: Okay, let's hear from Jane in Scarborough. Hi, Jane. Hello, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm good. And, yeah, I've
5: done bad things. I've speed, and, and I cut peop- I've i cut people off, although a lot of times they were in my blind spot. Now I have a nice car that tells me when someone's in their blind spot. But one thing that, that drives me insane is you get on the 401, and there are people doing half the speed limit. So in 100, they're doing 50, 60, just putting along. You come around the bend, and you're on their butt immediately. And they have no idea that they are dangerous and that that is actually reckless driving. As much as doing 50 over the speed limit is reckless, 50 under is just as bad.
1: Let's, let's see what Raymond Chan has to say about that. Do you agree?
3: Yeah,
5: I agree that that's definitely a
3: safety hazard. If you're going to be driving that slow, perhaps you um, you, you shouldn't be out on our roadways. 50, 50 below seems like uh, it, it's it's pretty excessive, especially for highway speeds. That's quite dangerous. If you have someone who's coming up from behind you who uh, doesn't necessarily see you right away, and one of your earlier callers had mentioned that three second rule. Well, three seconds if you're going above the speed limit as it is, if you're doing a buck fifty, you know, down the four hundred one, you might not necessarily be able to stop on time. Uh, without hitting the back of that person's vehicle. So absolutely, quite dangerous,
1: agree.
5: But even doing 120 or 110 and you come up on someone who's doing 50 and 60, you're not stopping.
1: Well, isn't the speed
5: limit 100? Yeah, and yes, I I do 110 a lot of times when I'm on the 401. I certainly would never do more than, than 115, but when they're doing 60 in 100, it's a, it's 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 dangerous. It's very dangerous, and they shouldn't be on the highways. Okay,
1: Jane. Thanks for that. Thanks. Uh, we've got another Jane in Burlington. Hello, Jane.
6: Hi, Libby. Thank you for taking my call. Um, my father taught me to drive, and I was 14. I'm now 80. Are you still driving? Oh yes, I'm still driving. Um, uh, I he just taught me everything and, and the safe, all the safe things to do. Like, for example, you know, parallel parking. And he said, don't, don't make several right turns just to miss a left turn. You get in there and make that left turn. And um, another friend of mine said, when you're at a stoplight, or you're coming up to a stoplight, to stay back a little bit from the car in front of you so that if somebody behind you doesn't stop. You don't get the back and the front of your car smucked. Okay. Uh, but I, I wonder why I shouldn't be saying this now because I'm going to have to be going in for my test at 80, but they don't road test any of these people. It's just a written test and then they say, okay, where you go.
1: Well, yeah, and there, there's been a big issue. The tests are way backlogged. Uh, Jane, thanks yeah. for your call. Okay. Okay, um, we are uh, going to uh, start getting to the end of our time. Uh, Brian Patterson, you know, what, what do you recommend? What should we do? Uh, you know, I think we've got to keep
4: doing the ab- advocacy work that we're doing because at the end of the day, all of those incremental changes have been very positive to protecting uh, roads getting the kind of accurate information that these surveys uh, provide for meaningful discussion, uh, the same old, same old, uh, not working. In fact, uh, your your previous caller, there are a number of drivers over 80 who have been uh, uh, gone for road testing. Uh, it's just uh, they're, uh, they're it, currently you mentioned there's a backlog. So we have some people that might be 83 that, would have been screened out as drivers at eighty uh, that haven't been uh, haven't been in for for testing. So uh, I don't think the job of uh, uh, you know uh, as Ontario's chief uh, uh, public safety advocate is going away at the Ontario Safety League. We're going to see changes in, uh, uh, coming forward. Very happy with the uh, moving Ontario Motor uh, uh, Moms Act. But boy, there's going to be work and there's going to be work for you and me, Libby, explaining it to the public on an ongoing basis. So I think we're going to keep doing that. But education is the key and use of online education is going to become uh, very helpful with uh, some of these people.
1: Uh, Raymond, I didn't have a chance to ask you, do you think that part of the problem is that a lot of people just don't know the rules of the road?
3: yeah I tend to agree with Brian on this one for sure that uh lack of education is certainly something that is uh that is missing here when we're talking about things like sunk driving and new laws and what gets passed and uh you know what can you do and what can't you do I think that as young people and when we get our driver's license at the age of sixteen you've got that you've got that uh, road test book in hand, you go through your various tests, you go through your g one your g two and then you ultimately get your g and you're not required to take your driver's test again basically until you're eighty years old so if you're not paying attention to the news or you're not listening to organizations like CA or the Ontario Safety League who are putting out messages around what the government and what law enforcement is doing to uh, help enforce some of these new laws in place, then you're not as well informed. And, uh I think a lot of people out there simply don't know what the definition really of stunt driving is or what it encompasses. So Yeah, I'm not sure
1: that, that for our audience, st- stunt driving is the biggest issue, but I think there are probably other things like the four-way stops. Uh, what do you tell people about a four-way stop in 20 seconds, Raymond?
3: Well, the four-way stop, I mean, you, you, you've got to come to a complete stop. Who, who, who approaches the intersection first is going to obviously have that right of way. If you, both, uh, if you both reach the intersection at the same time, then the person who is on the right of, of you has, has ultimately that particular right of way. But I can see how that's confusing to understand for a lot of people as well. Or you might not find yourself in that situation because not a lot of places may have four-way stops in your community. I will mention one other thing, Libby, is that one of the other things that's emerging here in Ontario that we're seeing a lot more of is these roundabouts that you see in communities. Now, those things are really confusing. So better education needs to be uh, needs to be had around that as well.
1: OK, they have a lot of them in Europe and that's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Raymond Chan and Brian Patterson. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. Libby. And that is all the time we have for today. Free-for-all Friday is coming up tomorrow. If you didn't have a chance to have your say, or if there's something else you want to chat about that we did not cover, call back tomorrow on the one, the only, the original Free-for-all Friday. That's all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. Do you ever drive dangerously? A new poll from the Canadian Automobile Association reveals that 55% of Ontario drivers admit to engaging in unsafe driving habits. At least sometimes, if you ask me, the other 45% are lying. Okay, people, so it's time to fess up. Do you ever do this? Um, and if you don't want to talk about what you do, what about you, what you're seeing other people doing? Because 95% say they witness other people doing dangerous things. Boy, sometimes I come in here just... Never mind. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 and uh, we're going to take your calls. And we're going to begin with Brian Patterson, President and CEO of the Ontario Safety League. Hi, Brian. Hi, Libby. I have to agree
4: with you. I think uh, we, uh, we deal with uh, uh, deviant drivers every month. And we do a lot of work with corporations. And when you ask people to assess their own driving... They think they're sort of a 9 or a 10. And when you ask them to assess everybody else's driving, they're a 4 or a 5. So I think CAA has done everybody a big favor by doing the science to quantify the problem that we're seeing out there today.
1: Okay, and Raymond Chan from the CAA is with us also. Hi, Raymond.
3: Hi, Libby. Hi, Brian. Good to Uh be here.
1: So, Raymond, uh, were you surprised at all? And do you agree with me that if 55% say they do this sometimes, the other 45% are just not fessing up?
3: I think so. Um, I, I, I would tend to agree. You know, when I saw these results, I would say that the 55% to me personally was a little bit low. Um, I, I can't imagine that, uh, that that everybody out there is driving, the you know, according to the rules of the road and the way that they should be. Um, this this number, you know, fifty five does reflect a fair number of drivers that are out there who self admitted that uh, they that they have driven in some sort of unsafe uh, fashion. So I would say that the number is is rather low, and I was uh, I was surprised to see it.
1: Okay, well, l- let's talk about what constitutes driving dangerously. Let, m- let me just tell you some of the things I witness on a regular basis that sometimes just Shock me! Uh, one of them is people in the left lane suddenly deciding they're going to turn right. Um, that's pretty dangerous. There's a lot of uh, cutting off, so it's an unsafe lane change. Somebody who decides at the last minute they're, they're going in front of you, or they just they, they don't really have clearance to change lanes, but they do it anyway. Uh, what else are the common things, Brian?
4: Well, I think we've got people that are just consistently driving too fast. I think they think that the uh, the, the little square white object with a number in it is kind of a suggestion. It's not really a requirement. Um, uh, I know with the uh, with the OPP, uh, every time they're at a public event, somebody will ask, "What is the margin I'm allowed to drive over the limit and not get a ticket?" <laughs> Uh, and I think uh, we, we, we see it consistently. I'm sure every uh, justice of the peace gets the, uh, the, the, the great whining story. I wasn't the only one doing it, but I was the only one who got a ticket. Therefore, you should cancel my ticket. Um, it's, uh, 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 we, we still see improvement in areas like impaired driving and uh, awareness. And again, CAA has pulled that number out where people are very, very happy with the changes we collectively advocated for with the uh, minister's office, only to find that they like it for everybody else. But I can tell you the people I see on the weekend who've been caught under stunt driving and related extreme driving habits, uh, they, they, they feel they were sort of picked on. and uh, And I think we're... We're in the in the land of entitlement right now, where people feel they can drive as they want, and if the police catch them, they were unlucky. If the speed camera catches you twelve times, it's a technological uh, abuse of the system. Where everybody who lives in that area knows they, the the cameras are there. Science, engineering, and education. So uh, uh, I just uh, I just find uh, uh, the the other piece that. That that that, that uh, when came out of uh, Germany. I think uh, Raymond will know that they, uh, they they interviewed bad drivers and found they are between the ages of 19 and uh, and 35 are more likely to be con- uh, conducting themselves in an aggressive manner. And surprisingly enough, they're male. So, uh, and a lot
1: know. of them drive pickups. I saw that and it's true. And, and I've, I've been either in front of a pickup who gets mad because I'm not going fast enough for them and they, you know, take off. Uh, Raymond, what are some of the other common dangerous behaviors?
3: Well, I think one of the things that hasn't been mentioned is, is tailgating. Tailgating is one of those just common things, and I see it all the time as I'm driving. The person who's um, following me way too closely, almost near my bumper, that is actually considered as a dangerous act and could potentially uh, be, be labeled as, uh, as dangerous driving. Um, a lot of people, what we've found um, and who we've surveyed, um, simply don't know what, um, what dangerous or stunt or distracted driving, what actually constitutes as that. A lot of people, when you hear the term stunt driving, they simply think of either speeding or driving aggressively in some nature. But I think you gave some of the other examples there about weaving in and out, about uh, unsafe lane changes, you know, not, not using your signal, that sort of thing. All of these things are, are just bad things that, uh, that occur on the roadways as you're driving. And I see it quite frequently. And I don't think necessarily the message is, uh, is getting home to people about how serious, uh, potentially, those inactions could be.
1: Yeah, and some of, with that weaving in and out, it makes no sense. The the person doesn't really get any further ahead. But let me start taking some calls from people. Barry in North York. Hi, Barry.
7: Afternoon. Yes, answer to answer your question, I have seen dangerous driving. I don't drive that much, but um, and I've also seen dangerous driving when I'm walking the street for crying out loud. But the one thing that I really believe. Use the three-second rule when you're on the highway. There's 95% of the people, at least, when I do drive on the highway, that don't use that rule. I bet some people don't, don't even know what that rule is. Right? Okay. And also, and also, another one, um, people don't realize that even when they use Bluetooth, it's still dangerous It's distracting. I saw a friend of mine make three mistakes when she was driving me home. It wasn't all that far, and she was using Bluetooth, so it is a distraction. So don't feel because you don't have um, your phone in your hand that you're not doing dangerous. I say don't do that either.
1: Good point, Barry. Thanks for your call. Let's go to Ron in Guelph. Hi, Ron. Hi, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, Libby, I can speak with some experience
8: to um, this subject. I've got 40 years of highway driving with Go Transit, Greyhound, Grey Coach, and I'm still driving a school bus. Um, um, one quick comment about the last subject, real quick. If you think, think things are bad in Ontario, try going into Quebec, where in <laughs> Gatineau they closed a hospital because the nurses walked off the job.
1: Um, yes, go ahead. So you said. Anyway- you were on the highway yesterday. I know that there was a something bad that happened on the highway yesterday. Did you see it?
8: No, I was on the highway yesterday, and um, and I drove in, and my nerves are shot. Uh, incidentally, I'm in the rest area and Cambridge off the 401 because I don't want to be using my Bluetooth when I'm driving in heavy traffic at this at highway speeds. That's just that's just plain dangerous. You're, you're not concentrating on your driving, correct? Correct. Um, anyway, no, I was I was actually in Toronto, and I chose. I said, "This is madness," and I've got a transponder. I said, "I'm going up to the 407, and I'm going to take a relaxed drive home." But um, I mean, I'm the last comment, Libby. I don't know, I don't know where to start uh, with the uh, driving, and since I retired 11 years ago, it just seems to be getting worse. And a lot of it has got to do with the volume. Um, I mean, I see uh, people doing the stupidest things. The traffic is only doing 80 or 90. And I see these guys who are desperate, and they're from lane to lane to lane. And um, if I can say one thing, anybody, everybody's heard of defensive driving? Well, the best way to think of defensive driving, Libby, is the old Boy Scout motto, and that's be prepared.
1: Yeah, you need to be. Ron, thanks very much for your call.
8: Okay, thanks.
1: Okay, we've got to take a break, but we will be back with more on this interesting poll on dangerous driving. Fifty five percent of people admit to it sometimes. Uh, I'm curious uh, if you're just leaving us with your first name. um, You know, maybe somebody will call and fess up to something they did. 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And we'll be right back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Good afternoon and welcome. Yesterday, Ontario's Health Minister announced a plan to clear the backlog of surgeries resulting from COVID-19. Christine Elliott pledged $324 million for an additional 67,000 operations and 135,000 more hours of diagnostic imaging. Is it enough? These numbers are very different from those we heard from Ontario's financial accountability officer just two months ago. He projected the backlog would reach 419,000 procedures by the end of September and estimated it would cost the province $1.3 billion and take over three and a half years to clear. Now, Elliot blamed the discrepancy on modelling and we are soon going to hear from the people who are actually going to be delivering these services. But let me give you the numbers, and I want to hear from you if you have been waiting for an operation, especially uh, joint replacement, because those are one of the ones that have mostly been put on hold when things were paused because of COVID. What's it been like? How long have you been waiting? I really want to hear. Also, uh, eye surgery has been put on hold. The numbers to call? 416 toll-free 866 740 And again, want to hear from you if you've been waiting for your operation. And right now, I'm joined by Dr. Kevin Smith, who is the CEO of the University Health Network, Dr. David Jacobs, who's president of the Ontario Association of Radiologists, and Dr. Peter Ferguson, who is the the Albert and Tammy Lettner Chair in the Division of Orthopedic Surgery and a professor in the department at the University of Toronto. Hello, and thank you so much for joining us.
9: Hello, thanks for having having us. Hi, thanks for having us.
1: Okay, we'll start with a very simple question to each of the three of you, starting with Dr. Smith. Is this enough?
9: I think it's a great start, and I don't know that we'll know that it's enough until we actually are able to dig into um, how many of those estimated procedures are still required, and what was in the original modeling. Um, I'm based on the numbers we're seeing at University Health Network, which is about 5,000 cases we've we had to cancel. I'm optimistic that it is enough, and that if we had to go back to the ministry uh, and the minister and talk about additional funding for catch up. I think that she's open and accessible for us to do so.
1: Dr. Ferguson, in your practice, do you think it'll be enough?
10: Uh, i So I would agree with with Dr. Smith that it is a good start um, I, I think that the the truth is probably somewhere in between the numbers that uh, that you've given here earlier on that uh, the forty three hundred uh, I can tell you that from what I've seen, the uh, designated funding for orthopedic surgery procedures is good, but the the shortfall um, is still going to be uh, fairly significant, maybe not as much as much as was uh, prognosticated earlier on. But uh, I I still think, and the message here for patients, is that I don't think people uh, are going to be expecting a phone call uh, next week or the week after if they've been on the wait list to get their hip or knee replacement done.
1: Dr. Jacobs there's 135,000 more hours for diagnostic imaging and uh you know a, a lot of people have had regular screening postponed and a lot have avoided it so how is that going to play out because before you know you need or are eligible for the surgery you you've got to get uh, the imaging done
11: Absolutely without a diagnosis there's no cure uh what we're going to see Uh, is uh, we're going to understand in the next few months uh, how big the backlog is based on diagnostic imaging. There's always a constant level of uh, disease in society, whether it be cancer, joint replacements, or whatever. We know that we've canceled or had to postpone a lot of these surgeries. Um, but the total number is going to remain the same. What we're going to see is, as we do more and more diagnostic imaging, uh, we're going to start to uncover a lot of these patients who have need uh, of surgery. But in terms of the funding, this is tremendous. This is is a tremendous gift uh, for the patients of Ontario um, and in terms of whether it's going to clear out the backlog, yes I think it will for diagnostic imaging. Um, what it won't clear out quite yet is all of our procedures that we do. We do a tremendous amount of interventional procedures and those are very much backlogged as well. So it's a, it's a really good start uh, and if we can turn some of this into more permanent funding, I think we're going to be in, in very good shape going forward.
1: Okay, there's there's something about this plan that I'd like to clear up because I don't quite get it. So uh, what I read was that... Uh, the hospitals will be ramped up to 100% of pre-COVID by the fall. So no extra anything will happen until then. And these extra procedures will happen between the fall and September. Uh, Dr. Smith, can you explain that to me?
9: Sure. So I think a couple of major factors. One, I I actually don't think in this case that money is our most rate limiting factor. It is Human resources, so it's nurses and doctors and OTs and PTs and all of the support staff that make the hospital run every day. We just simply do not have an excess supply. And they, many of them have been working full out, uh, over 100% occupancy, and they need a break, particularly those in critical care and areas that have been very drawn upon. So I think um, we're, we're really working hard not to ramp up above what we call our summer rate even though we are a little bit over 100%, um, we're really trying to ensure that those very stressed staff for quality of work life and their own mental health get a break. And then in the fall, um, remember, we, we always run over 100% in the fall. That's not new to Ontario's health care system, unfortunately. Maybe if I could, maybe two more points that I think are important. My colleagues made one. The other concern I think we all have is much of screening has been closed down. So we may also be re- be seeing patients with more advanced disease, unfortunately. Yeah. More advanced disease requires more intensive treatment. So that's something that we're also looking for and worried about. We, we know who was cancelled. What we don't know is how many people would have developed disease and how much further along might it be. Mm-hmm. And, and then um, I think the other piece of this is the province has made an investment. where We believe we're on the precipice of a federal election. I really hope we don't miss the opportunity to call on the parties running for the next government of Canada to understand the role that they wish to play in supporting the provinces for this catch-up to
1: occur. Okay. Dr. Ferguson, uh, Dr. Smith just talked about staffing and staffing being the impediment to, to start ramping up right now. Uh, that's actually one of the big criticisms of the opposition. Uh, we will be talking to the opposition in, in a number of minutes, but they say that this plan doesn't allow for hiring more nurses or, or all of the other staff. Is is that a big problem, in your opinion?
10: Yeah, I think that's of, of critical importance um, to be able to uh, sort of take on that volumes, especially if Uh, There is a plan, as has been indicated in this uh, in this in this release to do surgeries, for example, on on weekends and evenings um, to to go to individuals who have really been uh, been working day and night over the past year and a half during this pandemic and, and to say to those individuals, well, Those same individuals, now you're going to have to work some evenings and and weekends in order to ease this backlog, I think is is really unfair. It, it, you know, puts undue stress onto the physical and and mental well-being of of our nursing staff and and all of our allied health personnel as well. So I, I think that's a very valid concern.
1: Um yeah Dr but the other question is i mean do you assuming that there was money for this do you just go out and hire however many more nurses are are these people available and properly trained
10: yeah, that's that's a very good question. I mean, I'm I'm not in hospital administration. I'm more in in uh sort of university academics. Uh yeah. so but I don't I don't think that it's as uh, as quick and easy as saying yes, uh, you know, we can uh easily hire a couple of hundred nursing staff uh to fill the gap across the city. I, I do not think it's that easy. Uh
1: Dr. Smith, maybe you have some more insight on yeah, that.
9: I absolutely agree with my colleagues uh, So they aren't there to be frank. So uh, if you're a nurse in Ontario, uh, at the moment, you have any number of open vacancies. So at UHN, as an example, at any one time, we have about 500 nursing positions available that we are at this moment unable to fill. So, um, But I, I think also there's some opportunities there that require us to re-examine how, what scope of practice looks like, who can help extend nurses and physicians and others, particularly in operating rooms, again, in critical care and those catch-up areas, so um, one of the things that we're focusing on, part of UHN is the, the Michener Institute of Education, and thinking about who are those extenders, since we just won't be able to produce enough nurses through our colleges and university programs at, at any time uh, to really meet the future demand when one considers the retirement likelihood uh, for the existing nursing population. So I think it does require us to really go back and, and vision on what's what's the new multidisciplinary care team look like, and how can we uh, uh, incorporate extenders if we don't find enough nurses which I, I believe is already the case
1: uh I mean, uh, this is a little beyond the scope of, of, of this conversation, but isn't that going to become already at Southlake there's a, a dispute over the kind of nurses they're hiring? Um, and I think it's a union thing where they're saying, we, we don't want you to allow people with less training than whatever it is to take these jobs. So is, is that another impediment to this, Dr. Ferguson?
10: Uh, Yeah, I think so. I think you do have to look uh, very closely at what the scope of practice is. you know there are uh, physician extenders, uh, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, uh, nurse uh, um, nurse first assist in in operating rooms, who uh, who I think can certainly uh, and, and these actually individuals would what I would argue would be um, you know extremely well trained um, and probably not the situation that you're you're referring to, um, but uh, they would not come cheap to be able to hire these individuals to uh, fill in. Some of, these, uh, some of these roles. So I think at the end of the day, you, you can't compromise quality when it
11: comes to patient care. Uh, you, you, you have to remember uh, that there's a tremendous amount of training that goes into a lot of the people that we as physicians rely on, uh, and that's very true of diagnostic imaging. So we did have some emergency funding available, uh, and we had a very hard time filling the slots for the MRI technologist. That's a highly skilled job for CT scan. And that's why when I say that this is a good start, um, what I think we need to do is look at what's happened in the past that hasn't worked and try and figure out how to make it work in the future. So previously diagnostic imaging, particularly CT and MRI funding, uh, was dealt with kind of emergency surge funding. Uh, So you would have an operating budget, and then you get additional money on top of that to try and beat down the wait list. What would make far more sense is if, after we've dealt with this crisis, we recognize and acknowledge that we do need to have a much more steady source of funding, uh, and not just deal with it on emergency basis uh, on an emergency basis, because that will allow us to confidently train and hire the necessary people uh, to run the machines. And that takes time. You, just, you can't make an MRI technologist overnight. That takes a significant time.
1: <laughs> Believe me, I, I had my uh, annual MRI this week, so I know it's a, it's a complicated thing. And Dr. Jacobs, I mean, again, even if it involves working extra hours, do you have enough radiologists to read these images? so uh,
11: yes we do to be quite frank we're a little burnt out uh most of the radiologists are are tired uh we've thought uh, we've been working pretty much nonstop since we've ramped back up uh we're doing a lot of interventional procedures which is uh hard long work uh but yes there are enough of us to do it um and the, the real The the real bottleneck for us is going to be getting the technologists necessary to generate studies. But uh, we'll be able to do it. Uh, So I I, I just want to stress, this is a very very good news announcement and it's very welcomed by the radiologist this will this will make a big difference for patients
1: in Ontario okay I, w- I want to put the shout out to people I want you to tell me how long you've been waiting or have you maybe been waiting to even get the diagnostics your hips been bothering you your knees been bothering you whatever the situation is we'd like to hear about it the numbers four one six three six zero zero seven forty toll-free one 180 Eight six six seven forty four seven forty, and we've been hearing that money is not necessarily the biggest impediment. It's staff and it's trained staff. Uh, but also, there's one of the things that I'd like to focus on is uh, surgical lists. So I know that often surgeons uh, who are kind of superstars uh, they have their own patient lists. But if you merge them. It it takes care of a big backlog. So, what is happening on that front, Doctor Smith?
9: Yeah, there's a it's a great point, and there's a lot of discussion on this one. I would say there isn't a um, one shot serves all approach. So, we're hearing and talking to patients. The important issue is if I'm having a, a basically a one intervention, I'm likely to see this person again. It's a very important uh, intervention for me, but it's not a longitudinal care, it's not a chronic illness, Uh, I might want to consider that. If I have a cancer diagnosis, which I believe may end up uh, requiring a lifelong relationship, I'm not that anxious to end up uh, allocated wherever wherever I um, might get in first, as opposed to having a therapeutic relationship with my provider. So I think at the end of the day this really compels us to go back to our patients and talk to them about those options whether it's a central intake model where you take the first available appointment within a certain geography that might be a great solution for some specialties and some patients and there are other disciplines and diseases where relationship-based care is particularly important so i think we have to be flexible on both of those approaches and as always really be focused on hearing from patients as well as providers. Uh,
1: Dr. Ferguson, in terms of uh, hip and knee replacements, is, is that viable? I mean, you know, uh, uh, a, a lot of people in my set are getting, uh, starting to get these uh, operations, and, you know, they talk to each other, and it's like so-and-so is the best guy. But if, if you took the first available orthopedic surgeon, it might go a little quicker.
10: Yeah, it's hard to know if one model is going to work for for everybody. Um, I think that there's certainly a large proportion of the population that, you know, would like to do their research ahead of time, find out uh, who people are happy with, find out who is perceived as as the best, and, and they're willing to wait. Uh, you know, if it's six months or a year in order to, to have surgery by that individual. Um, on the other hand, you get, uh, others who would say, look, I, I'm just so unhappy with my quality of life right now that I'm, I'm willing to take, you know, whoever comes along. And, and I, I really think that, that that speaks to, you know, in general, the very, very high quality, um, that, that, I can tell you orthopedic surgeons uh, the care that orthopedic surgeons in the province deliver that this is not um, a matter of choosing between uh, the the good and the not so good uh, you're talking about choosing between those who you know perhaps have been in practice for 30 years and they've uh, you know earned a very uh, deserving reputation versus individuals that maybe have not been in practice so long but still deliver you know excellent and exemplary care so I, I think it's hard to sort of say that one Model is going to work for everybody. I think, however, having a, some sort of hybrid model where uh, you know people are interested in going into some central intake and getting allocated to the first available surgeon, if that works for them, then I think that that's that's a very reasonable approach
11: to take.
1: Uh, and uh, for, uh,
11: doc- for, sorry for diagnostic imaging, though uh, that's been proposed, but it is problematic because I can guarantee you that. Uh, diagnostic imaging is very complex and it's very site-specific. So if you have somebody who's highly specialized at UHN in terms of one procedure, they're going to want a very specific kind of study catered to what they're trying to do. So to have a central intake um, could make sense for very basic uh, studies, but you do have to be cautious and realize that some things need uh, highly specialized care and highly specialized imaging.
1: Yeah, and but I don't, think, I don't think there's a situation where patients pick who is reading their scans.
11: No, but yeah. there is a proposal out there to have central intake for all medical imaging as well, which is problematic for the reasons I've stated.
1: Okay. Um, final um, question. Uh, I was looking at wait time numbers from before the pandemic. And according to the Canadian Institute for Health Information, uh, in 2019, 72% of people got their joint replacement surgery in the recommended six month time timeframe. Uh, Dr. Ferguson, do you have an idea of what the pandemic has done to that?
10: Yeah, I can't I can't give you uh, the updated numbers from uh, from Kaihai. Um, I, I have no doubt that it will be uh, detrimentally affected. Uh, and as I indicated earlier on, I, I think that um, uh, really would caution patients who heard this very exciting news yesterday. There's no doubt it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's cause for a great sense of optimism um, that this is not going to be an overnight solution to, uh, you know, to people who've been waiting for an extended period of time. There will still be, you know, there will still be waits. Um, um, my sense certainly it is uh, that those numbers are going to go down, the percentage of people that do meet that wait time. But uh, you know, I think that this will be a huge step towards uh, trying to uh, rebound from that decrease.
1: Uh, Kevin Smith, I'm going to give you the last word. What do you want to tell patients who are waiting?
10: Um,
9: I want to tell them work closely with your providers, um, engage with them around your best process of care. Um, obviously, there's a political element to this. I think keep in close touch with what the ministry is proposing and as citizens, express your views on whether you like that model or don't. I, like my colleagues, would agree this is a fantastic investment. I think we're well on the, on the way to having the resources we need. Now our challenge will be to ensure that the quality of work life of the providers who got us through this very challenging illness uh, uh, is, is as equally well addressed as is the need for patient care.
1: Okay, thank you so much, Dr. David Jacobs, Dr. Peter Ferguson, and Dr. Kevin Smith. I appreciate your time.
8: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Bye bye. Okay, well, the NDP, though, says that this plan will not clear the backlog because there are no targets and no plans to hire more staff. So let's bring in NDP, MPP, and health critic, Fran Chalina. Hi, Fran. Hello, how are you? Fine, how are you? Very good, very good. Okay, so we've just talked to three doctors who are uh, on the ground providing these services, and, and, and they think uh, the announcement is pretty good. Well... Very uh, good. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and, I, and I
12: was listening in. Um, I'm not too worried about having sufficient physicians to do the procedures. Uh, where the worries come is for people who need to be admitted into the hospital after their surgical procedures. So some surgery, you go in in the morning, you see your physicians, you go into OR, you go home. Those I'm not too worried about. But for everybody who needs to be admitted, and sometimes you need to be admitted into the ICU uh, for an amount of time because of the surgery then I'm very worried. I'm at a rally right now at the hospital. The number of nurses, like experienced nurses, you're talking 25, 28, 30 years of practice who <laughs> who stayed through the pandemic because they knew that they needed, we needed them and, and they wanted to be up to it are leaving. They cannot take that amount of stress anymore. Uh, a surgeon is very important, but the post the surgical care is done by nurses, by respiratory therapists, by physiotherapists, by everybody else, by PSW, by RN, by RPN. And all of them have worked flat out through the pandemic, are tired, are demotivated, and say and are saying goodbye. Where is the uh, plan to recruit, retain, and make sure that the hospital has the staff to look after us? after we have surgery none of that is there Um, the uh, financial accountability officer put the uh, the cost of this at 700 million dollars more than what the government is putting in I am worried I'm not so worried about surgeon I am worried about all the hospital staff that we need to be cared for
1: Uh, We were talking to hospital administrators, and they agree that all those staff people and the shortage thereof is a big problem. But what they're saying is that even if they had all the money... Right now, they still don't have a pool of people who are ready to take those jobs. And Kevin Smith, the CEO of, of the University Health Network, said that at any given time, he's got 500 nursing positions that he can't fill. Well,
12: uh, I would say we need to look at this. So I think we're all on the same page uh, that we don't have enough staff. So why is it that we don't have enough staff? Let's talk to them for a second, like I did, like I do all the time. The number one reason, the caseload is not manageable. You cannot ask a nurse to look after that many patients. Days in and days out, they just burn out. How about we bring more nurses in so that we can share the load? A whole bunch of them that are exiting right now would say, oh, well, okay. If I don't have to look after 15 post-op patients anymore, you bring that down to eight, uh, like it used to be, I may consider staying. That will be a workload that's not gonna stress me out and keep me up awake at night. Uh, So let's look as to why is it our university are putting out really good qualified nurses, physio, respiratory therapists, uh, all, all the rest of them. They want to work. And once they get there, why is it that they're not staying? Why is it that they're leaving? Has anybody asked them the question? Has anybody listened to them? Because we know what the answers are. We are able to do this. It needs a plan. For
1: recruitment and retention, that means listening to them. Uh, what about uh, the other thing that people are saying is that if you bring in other types of support staff to help fill the gap, but there's a lot of resistance to that from unions. I would say the, um, the switch, uh, most of the switch we're
12: talking about is to go from having a an RPN doing the job of an RN or having a PSW doing the job of a RPN, et cetera, et cetera. There is room for different uh, classifications of workers to work to their full scope of practice. Everybody agrees to this. Let's do this in a way that makes sense and keeps the patient safe. Uh, There are um, lots of good examples right here in Ontario where we've allowed workers to work to their full scope of practice and done so in a safe way. But it's not always being done. Uh, Look at what happened in in Lake Ridge Hospital, where they brought in people with no experience in ICU to work in ICU. ICU is one-on-one. We know how to train ICU nurses. Uh, Let's put (laughs) our knowledge of training into place. So... There is room to let people work to their full scope. It has to be done in ways that Ontario's know how to do. Not just uh, suddenly say, well, we don't need RNs anymore. We'll replace them by RPN. This has never worked. Uh, The safety of patients has never been maintained. How do we get RPNs to work to full scope? Now we're talking a different uh, conversation. Okay,
1: Franjelina, thank you so much for that. You're always welcome. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Okay, so uh, that is the situation. We need more nurses, more trained nurses, but the doctors seem to be happy with this announcement and good news for people waiting for their surgery. Now we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, it's time to fess up. Do you ever drive a little dangerously, do anything unsafe if you're in a hurry. Um, A lot of people are fessing up to that when we return.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.